Welcome to the Monday Minute of the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. These are shorter and more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. Joined today by Steve. How are you, man? I am fantastic because I'm leaving in four hours to go up to Alaska. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be behind you. I leave this afternoon. Um, I guess meet up in Anchorage. See you tonight at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We also have a, I'll call it a special guest, former podcast host, Jay Kavalichek. How's it going? I'm also fantastic. Also a little jealous, but you know, somebody's got to hold down the office while you guys go to Kodiak. Yeah, you know. Did, did you like the former podcast host thing? Yeah, I was going to say, why, <laughs> why are you the former <laughs> podcast host, Jake? I mean, I just got busy during August. I mean, during the during the busy time, I wasn't able to keep up. I wasn't able to just... Keep on keeping on like you are, Mark. I don't know. Just kind of let it slip away. We'll bring it back. We'll bring it back. Sounds like a bunch of excuses. <laughs> the final Friday, Jake's podcast segment. Good, but short-lived. We'll see if it comes back. It would be good to bring it back, man. Okay, we'll do that. But to, just to make it clear, to no fault, but anybody but Jake's, it hasn't <laughs> happened. <laughs> Calling you out. <laughs> I am curious, Jake, because it has been a while since you've just been on this podcast, but what has your fall looked like, hunts and takeaways, lessons learned this year? You weren't prepped for that. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you that. So I just want your first impressions and kind of standout moments or lessons from this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this fall uh, definitely got after it in September. I think I hunted 12, 13 days uh, with my with my dad. Um so we hunted archery elk pretty hard. Didn't end up filling any tags though. I would say lessons learned. I mean, everything has to be perfect archery hunting. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a great time. Just couldn't make it happen, but we still have a little bit of a season left. So little brother's got a rifle buck tag uh, that starts November. So we'll be hitting that this weekend. And then next week on Friday. So basically when you guys get back from Kodiak, I'll be heading to go whitetail hunting for think six days so that'll be a totally new type of hunt for my dad and i we've never tree stand uh hunted for whitetail before so we'll be doing that so still a little bit left to the season and hopefully we can get it done kind of jealous of that man i've I've always wanted to tree stand whitetail hunt and it's never happened yeah yeah it seems like it's on a seems, mark i guess you like could get time attest that on a on a good day it's probably pretty dang cool on a slow day it's probably miserable yeah, I mean that that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you would be interesting, Steve, because you're so, uh, you know, you like to be more active, right? And so if it yeah. was a slow day, like even going back to our our recent rifle elk hunt, like sitting there for that full day was tough, uh, just because you always have that itch to, what if we do this? What do we do that? Could we move? Could we see that? What's over that ridge type thing? And obviously, the setting's mm-hmm. typically different for whitetail because it's not generally effective to move and you're not generally having a ton of ground to cover um but yeah it can be there's certainly been some amazing days just i've always loved getting in a tree stand before light and just waking up with the world right the sunrise animals come in get a nice cold day see deer moving just even watching deer when they're completely unaware of your presence and it's often at very close range. It, yeah, there's there's some 
appeal to tree stand hunting for sure. I just honestly haven't done much of it recently just because I've been so busy. Um, so yeah, I even miss it in a way, as silly as that sounds, since I live in Missouri and theoretically could do it a lot more than I do. Yeah. Yeah. Are you doing anything, Jake, to, since it is totally new to you, like, have you been asking questions, looking up things online, whether that's shooting, you know, cause it is different shooting from a tree stand or any of that stuff. Yeah. So de- my dad and I have, uh, headed out, shot, you know, some steeper angles. We're only shooting, you know, so that we're going with a, a good friend of ours who is diehard whitetail hunter out there. So he's, he's basically been our number one resource as far as, you know, asking questions and things we need to bring and stuff. Cause he's very generous kind of letting us hunt in his area. Um, yeah, shooting downhill, no more than 30 yards. That's kind of as far as he'll shoot. Um, I mean, other than that, all we need is, you know, safety harness and I mean, some warm clothes and that's about it. Um, you know, he's got it pretty, pretty dialed in for us. So, I mean, like I said, I th- we're pretty spoiled going into it. He's all, he already has stands pre-hung that you guys are using, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So already taken care of there as well. And he's been sending us trail cam picks uh, here and there. And it's looking like it's pretty good. Even with deer numbers, you know, in Idaho general, in general, just kind of being lower, some, some bucks are starting to move in. You know, we got some pictures in September. We weren't holding our breath because obviously there's going to be a lot that happens and then so once I think he sent us some pictures two days ago and still some solid bucks. And I'm not picky by any means when it comes to a solid buck or not. I'm just I'm just looking to, you know, go have a fun experience. What are in that part of Idaho for this time, you know, it's a little bit far out, obviously, to see a weather forecast, but like what type of temps are you kind of expecting? Uh I mean it ranges anything from like mm, high twenties, so like maybe probably thirties to, to about sixties. And this time, I mean, it definitely fluctuates pretty windy. So you got to, you know, watch the wind. And I obviously don't have any clue how that works um, out there uh, playing the wind in the tree stand. So that's just going to be another learning curve for me. Um, something that I'm, we're going to have to figure out. But yeah, it gets pretty, it gets pretty chilly over there. Two random things that I, I put a lot of value in, like if it's pretty cold and I'm hunting from a tree stand, obviously, you know, there's a lot of basics of layers and different things, but two random things you may or may not have thought about. One is uh, a hand muff. So other than just having like gloves, other than just having any pockets you may have on the clothing you're wearing, having like a hand warmer hand muff is incredibly valuable. And then you can obviously always throw like hot hands packets or something like that in there. Um, but I rely on that pretty heavily, especially when archery hunting. And then when it's colder, of course, cause I essentially either don't want to wear a glove or want to shoot with a really light glove. And so obviously hands can get cold. So using a hand muff is just phenomenal. So do that, get one if you don't have one, if it's going to be chilly. And then the other thing, uh, is for your tree stand and like the platform, if he doesn't already have something on the platform, bring uh, like your sitting pad or your glassing pad and actually put that under your feet. And as oh, weird as yeah. that sounds, that barrier of having some level of like insulation versus just open air fully circulating below your feet uh, when you know where a platform's typically open. 
and help tremendously in helping keep your feet warm. So those are two unsolicited tips I would give you. Well, thank you. Do you put do you put a a hand warmer in your jacket like behind you? I know sometimes people do that because uh, like there's that pocket on some like white tail specific jackets. Like there's like that mesh pocket mm-hmm. that you could put like a hand warmer in. Do you do that? Or I mean, if that's just calling, I mean, if that if it calls for extreme temps, maybe. But if not, yeah. no. I don't generally. I I run generally warm enough, like from a core body temp. I just have pretty poor circulation, so my hands and feet are always what get cold. So I don't generally need anything other than you know good clothing layers that are suitable for the temps in terms of like, yeah, hot hands and um and my upper body or on my torso or anything like that it's just for me keeping my hands and feet warm is always like the struggle and what makes me uh you know struggle to sit out longer in colder conditions for sure right yeah no i definitely probably wouldn't have brought a a sit pad for my feet so i just wrote that down thank you for the uh the tip there well we said earlier we're leaving today steve i i guess listeners should maybe a little bit of context. This, we're pre-recording this on Friday. So when you hear it on Monday and it's a Monday minute, we already have left. Uh, Jake, you're running the ship. So everybody can call Jake and bug him this week if you need something. But also, Jake, you had some some info you wanted to get out this week. We have kind of some new content and stuff like that that's worth mentioning on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So just a little PSA for me, something that I've kind of, you know, it's, so I know you mentioned I'm running the ship next week. It's nothing new. I mean, I basically run the ship. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no. So one thing, so I manage all of our customer service. So a lot, a big portion of my day is talking, talking to customers about pack fit, mainly when somebody's first got their pack. Um, and so, I mean, it, it fluctuates and it's in our best interest to, to really get that pack fit dialed in for everybody. Cause good pack fit is, is the number one thing for us. So we actually just put up a, a little, a little blog actually kind of explaining what wrong fitting looks like. And how it's very helpful um, to kind of look at that. Maybe you're dealing with one of these examples, and we then kind of give a list of bullet points of how to fix that. So this blog is just called Exo Mountain, or basically you can just find it exomountaingear.com forward slash fix fix fit. Um, and so you'll see a few different pack fit gone wrong pictures, but then how we've adjusted it. And so it's really helpful for, for customers to look at that whenever I'm talking with them and, and then kind of getting a little bit of visualization and get that taken care of. Another thing, or I don't know if you, do you want to add anything to that before I move on? I would say, even if you think the pack fits well and it's comfortable for you, still put the pack on and like try to emulate these photos Cause it's basically putting weight in the pack and then you tell a guy to take it, you know, have someone take a photo from six feet away from the side where you can see, you know, basically from the thigh up to the top of the head and just double check it. Cause I've a lot of guys, um, I'll go, maybe I'll go hunt with them or run into them out there in the field. And I would, they think they've got things right, but there's still like minor improvements that can be made or sometimes major improvements that could be made. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in getting the most out of your pack, definitely reference that that blog article and just double check how your pack is specifically fitting on you yeah i would equate it to like shooting form right like you you perceive what you're doing based off of uh a non-external perspective right like it feels this way i'm doing this thing 
But when you get an external perspective and you can look at like your shooting form, for example, you may see like, oh, why am I doing that? Or I'm overextending here or, you know, archery, like my elbow position is too high or something like that. You can just see and understand a lot when you look at something and not just go off of what you feel. And so, yeah, pack fits the same way. And then the other thing is, you know, this is obviously written from the perspective of our packs, but if you're listening to this and using a different pack, I, it would still be helpful to go look at this because again, we're showing like principles of right and wrong. I don't even say right and wrong. We feel it's right and wrong of good and bad. And maybe your pack has some adjustment to make some improvements. Now that we can't speak to other packs, a lot of other packs do have limited adjustment. You may not be able to solve all the problems, but it still would be something I think you could benefit from and learn from just by looking at it. They're just, they're really good examples to look at. So yeah, I would say everybody, whether you have a pack or don't, whether you think you have it right or you don't, uh, go check it out at least and look. Yeah, absolutely. And if you have any questions <clears throat> regarding pack fit, just feel free to give us a call or shoot us an email um, and we'd be happy to help out. Um, so moving on, another another question that I've gotten late as of late since you know rifle season is kind of, well, it's already bit kicked off for a month now uh, or just about, but we just released the quick release K4 rifle carrier. And it is one of the one of the only or one of the few accessories that is backwards compatible with our previous generation pack systems. So big question that I've gotten is um, if the K4 rifle carrier fits on the K3. And so short, short answer, yes, it's going to fit the exact same uh, as the K3 rifle carrier fitting on the K4. So we have a video on our YouTube how the K3 rifle carrier fits a K3. But um, what I'll do is on Monday when this podcast is released, on our YouTube and our Instagram, uh, you'll see my lovely face kind of taking you through the quick steps of attaching a K4 rifle carrier, that lower section, um, attaching that to the pack, and then the upper section, the, the quick release portion to the uh, to the top of the pack. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's all I've got for you guys. Uh, to dive into a listener question that is uh, timely on a couple different fronts, Jared wrote in and said, if I remember correctly, you guys have the Banish Backcountry Suppressor and the Thunderbeast Ultra 5 Suppressor. I was just wondering on your thoughts between the two. I'll be going uh, to a midweight short-barreled 6.5 PRC on a folding chassis, primarily for mule deer, and I'm trying to decide between those two suppressors. Thanks for the help. Yeah, so... Uh, we have done a podcast with the guys from Silencer Central who make the Banish suppressor. Um, that was quite a while ago. I want to say a couple years ago, maybe not quite that long. Um, at the time, they didn't have the Banish back country. That's a newer model to them. Um, they sent me a standard Banish suppressor, which is larger and heavier and isn't really an apples to apples comparison to something like a Thunderbeast Ultra, just because it is larger and heavier. Um, I have shot it. Uh, I like it. It's actually what I use on that 300 blackout I mentioned recently um, for my son. So that's what my kids hunt with essentially is that banish suppressor. But it's not something that I would want to take in the backcountry. It's just too big and too heavy. That said, Steve, you were, I think, getting ready. You got your approval, I think, right? For the banish backcountry? I, I physically have the suppressor in my hands. Boom. Which, yes. uh, yeah, I got it yesterday. Awesome. But I was along this guy's same lines. I was, I was actually thinking, well, I've got both of these. Now I need to, like, how can I 
measure in a meaningful way mm-hmm. like other than just screwing it on and shooting it and going oh that one sounds a little quieter like i was thinking I, yeah i don't know what that looks like you grab a i think your phone can kind of do like a decibel meter right yeah yeah so do shoot like a couple shots with each at you know have the phone 10 feet away and then do it again at a hundred feet away and see if there's a difference. And then how do you measure to me, recoil is a big deal. So if one does recoil better than the other, that's probably more important than sound. Yeah. I, I, but I don't know how the heck you measure that. I mean, obviously you can just go by feel, but even, you know, just from shot to shot, you're going to feel different even with the changing nothing. So, um, yeah, and they're probably going to be so. I, I'm guessing there's not going to be a drastic difference between them, but the banished backcountry I got is with the threaded adapter was right at nine ounces even. I can't remember what my Thunder Beast five is with the um with break the and the suppressor. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's right there i think it's eight nine ounces i think they're about a wash so yeah i could report back to this guy in uh, a little bit obviously i'm not we're up to alaska and not taking it with me it'll be when i get back from that i can maybe find the time and go play with it i just looked the ultra five is or should be uh, 7.8 and that's including the break including the break okay yeah and then the other one was oh. nine you said mm-hmm. not so about even. an ounce difference yeah, it'll be. That's partially why I brought up because I you had just mentioned to me a couple weeks ago that uh, you were getting your approval for it. So I knew that yeah. uh, this was partially me bringing this up to give you an assignment, Steve. Of like, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it would be great to shoot these and yeah, do some sort of comparison. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah I would I mean, have to. Uh, yeah, that'd have to be meaningful uh, recoil reduction and or sound reduction, one way or the other, to to pick one. But they, certainly the thunder or the. Uh, Silencer Central one certainly seems great quality and just need to go shoot it, test it out. Yeah, cool. Well, hopefully we can follow up on that and uh, give some data. Obviously, that's one thing that is tough with suppressors is it's just hard to get your hands on a lot of them. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I understand so many people want to make a like well-researched and informed purchasing decision because one, they're expensive. Two, it is an investment in time. Um, yeah, it's just not as easy as like, oh, I tried that one, didn't like it. I'm gonna exchange it, right? <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a big commitment to buy anything, and so uh, yeah, you just do a ton of research. I mean, that's like going back years in time. At this point, that's how I landed uh, at the time on a Thunder Beast. Was personally doing a ton and ton and ton of research, and then led me that direction. And I've obviously been really happy with that. So. Um, yeah, big topic and obviously a lot more people are interested in suppressors and are beginning to realize how beneficial they are and how easy it can be to get one despite the time and money. Uh, it's not complicated. It's just slow. Um, yeah. So hopefully we can provide some better, uh, comparisons on those two in particular for sure. Steve, you, um, you're taking the same old rifle setup though. Kodiak, right? I didn't even ask you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. just my Creedmoor. Yeah. I assumed you're not like considering changing anything to that because you're so happy with it. Yeah, don't fix what's not broken, man. Yeah. It's uh, been it's a great combination. Yeah. I did 
got that a sig cross i've had for a while that uh so a good friend of mine keith is coming up on the trip and he didn't really have a rifle for set up for deer hunting so i put that thing together and um ended up boshma had built a load with the 124 grain hammer hunters uh out for a crop for a cross he owned at one point and then he sold that gun so he gave me all the ammo from it and shot that and that dude I mean, like that i actually was super busy been pat's been you know pat that works for us uh um in exo has been shooting a bunch so i was like hey take this out and side it in for me and he went out and shot dude i mean 500 yards thing shoots a half moa group uh just like it's a pretty dang accurate gun and then i went out and shot it um i think uh, earlier this week just verifying um that my gun was on and i brought that along and yeah, that thing shoots awesome. I actually dig the kind of separate topic, that two-stage trigger. Mm-hmm. I was kind of, I kind of liked it. Yeah. It's nice. Then it's nice to kind of have that engagement to like, okay, you know, it's uh, it's about to happen. And then you can start, you know, I don't know. I really, really like shooting that two-stage trigger. <laughs> Especially compared to the, the setup on your standard cream war where <laughs> the wind blows and the trigger goes off. <laughs> I love, I still love that trigger, but, um, it, cause it was set up even the, even the two stage, right? You put the tension on it, but then it's not like you can feel it engage to where it's going to go off. And it wasn't, it's not a super heavy trigger from there, but yeah, I was, I was really impressed with that crop. I mean, for a factory gun, it shoots as good as my custom gun that would be, you know, $6,000 They shoot identical. I mean, that's pretty impressive. We had a, a just uh, another timely question a guy going on a late season elk hunt here in november and he essentially to condense his question was asking about how we um manage water on a a really late really cold hunt and he he did mention everything from like filtration to storage to drinking uh, because those are all obviously somewhat different aspects of water on a hunt um he was mentioning primarily are we still using uh, like a Sawyer squeeze or Kaden B free type filter, etc. Um, so any initial thoughts there, Steve? Again, like kind of broad, open ended on just water management when you're spending essentially all of your time in sub freezing temps. It's certainly trickier. The I, I continue to use the same Sawyer filters. You just got to be really careful. Obviously, if if there's water in the filter that you don't get out of there and that freezes, then uh, then potentially that compromises the filter. You would never know it. I think there's a couple different ways to test for it, but I've never even bothered <laughs> trying to figure that out. Just try to filter good, clean water and um, and then hope if the filter's you know malfunctioned that it's still, obviously it's still getting probably 99% of it instead of 100% or 99.99. Um, but yeah, like I ran into this on that, when I killed my elk last year, that story we told through, the, on that podcast series where you know it's 10 degrees and i was packing my elk out and like my nalgene lid was freezing like to the you know to the like take a drink and then 10 minutes later go to take a drink again i'm like breaking ice off of the cap to get it unscrewed but that's a better solution than your uh, if you're running a bladder with a hose because that's just going to freeze instantly so it's it's tough for sure i mean obviously if you're you know if you've got a full say like a two liter or three liter bag 
and you fill that up, uh, it's gonna it's gonna take a lot for that to freeze solid. You're gonna you can get ice and chunks in there. If you have smaller containers, those are gonna freeze quicker. So say like a 16 ounce, you know, your standard like little water bottle you'd buy at the grocery store, that's gonna freeze real quick over um, like a big three liter bladder container. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I I'll say this: I make sure I've got a full canister of fuel that uh if i'm on a cold hunt like that because you just never know how much you're gonna have to be melting to to keep things going <laughs> and whether that's melting the boiling water to melt your boots because they're frozen or boiling water to uh, melt you know frozen water bottles uh, it's certainly a, just an issue and something you gotta deal with yeah but if you a little bit risky obviously but if you have you know if you say you got a any water or two liter thing, three liter, you fill it up and you put it inside your pack. It's not going to freeze inside there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, you put it in there with your, all your gear and stuff. It's not going to be that cold inside there to freeze. It needs to be, you'd have to leave it out and exposed to the air. This just reminded me of when we were in, when we were in, uh, on the death hike in the Frank. Uh, Cause I had the bladder. I never ran a Nalgene, but Steve, you ran the, the Nalgene and you weren't mm-hmm. having any issues. And that was probably one of the coldest, time i mean it was a hunt but more death hike i mean i forget what the yeah. temps were exactly but um I don't remember that I was, well, one night was zero degrees it was yeah, cold. yeah yeah my and my bladder tube just froze and i kept trying to warm it up with my hands and tucked it in my pack and i was just struggling um and it definitely <laughs> made me wish i had an algene um on that specific adventure uh, yeah. but i didn't have any issues with keeping my dirty bladder or my dirty bag of water um you know any any issues with that freezing because it was in my main bag like what you were saying so i just know that if i'm going on a colder hunt definitely going to be choosing a nalgene over a water bladder and i don't know how much more because i never used it but i don't know how much more a uh, insulated tube will help than a non-insulated tube yeah because i have a non-insulated tube buys you minutes but not doesn't keep it from freezing you know maybe you get an extra 10 minutes but well if you're running if you're running a bladder and it's really cold you just have to once you take a drink keep biting on the valve and blow air back through the tube so that you're blowing all the water out of the tube back in the reservoir then you're good to go it's just once you if you just forget to do that once you're frozen and yeah. then what i've done what i've done in the past is that then i would put the uh, tube like down my back right so that the as you're hiking the heat of it would keep keep that melted and then you'd have to you know fish it out and um that but that was your really only option to to melt that yeah i think i did that and a little bit of water ran down my back definitely woke me yeah. up but i think i was <laughs> yeah. stealing water from you at that point because i just couldn't yeah. or i was stealing water from you or, or somebody and just yeah it was miserable or just sucked so yeah didn't like that yeah a few other things uh it's important to keep in mind that water freezes like from the top down and so even and this is relevant to like maybe you're not going to spend all day in sub-freezing temps but it's going to get real cold overnight and you have an algene is sometimes in your tent or what have you just storing that thing upside down because essentially you want uh you want it to freeze away from the lid or whatever your drinking source is right so um if you store something any type of bottle upside down the what's exposed at the top, which is now the bottom of the bottle, is going to begin to freeze there and not at the, the drinking port, if you will. So that can be helpful. Um, and then if you're getting ready to start your day, maybe you're leaving a camp, whether that's base camp or backcountry, whatever, and it's going to be a long, cold day, sub-freezing, um, just don't be afraid to add some hot water 
to what is going to be your primary water source. So whether that's a bladder or an algae, I'm not saying you need to start with boiling water, but if you're making that coffee or oatmeal or whatever in the morning, add some hot water to, you know, a, a quarter of an algae with hot water and then three quarters of regular water and kind of that's just going to help you start at a higher temperature, which is obviously going to cool slower. Um, so little things like that you can do just to, to get some extra help as well. I will say I've been impressed by um, the insulation properties of our Nalgene carrier. It's like a, a I think a hidden benefit. <laughs> we don't like you don't uh, it's not the way that we promote it too heavily, um, but both in terms of keeping water cooler on a hot hunt you know you fill up and filter from a fresh cold source that's going to keep it cooler longer or inverse in this situation maybe you do start a super cold day add a little bit of warm water to that nalgene and then carry that in our nalgene holder the the structure and the foam and everything internally inside of our nalgene holder and because it's more of a closed system it definitely does insulate that so that can be uh super beneficial and i think uh, a, a bit of an overlooked benefit of that carrier in particular yeah, I I love that on a cold or a hot day. It just keeps the water cold. I do like all my training hikes in the summer when it's you know I go out at lunch and it's a hundred degrees. Fill that thing up with cold water, you know, at the you know at the office little water tank, and it, it stays cold throughout the duration of that hunt. Where, um, it, you know, I used to just carry the water ball in my hand, and halfway through you'd have lukewarm water. Well, cool, guys. Thanks for the questions. Uh, We'll be back next week, hopefully, with uh, some stories from Kodiak. And if you have any other questions for us, whether that's timely for late season stuff or anything else, definitely let us know. As always, you can send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. And then also in the show description, we'll leave links to some of the resources we mentioned today, like that fitting article with those before and after examples and more. Thanks as always for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.